Welcome to Bible Study for Progressives, a show where moderates, liberals, and leftists of all faiths and ideologies come together to discuss scripture, spirituality, and politics. We engage scripture in its historical context, plumb its depths for wisdom and guidance, and apply its lessons to current events and social issues. Whether you're a liberal evangelical, a new age spiritualist, a social justice activist, or a postmodern theologian, there's something in this show for you. Come, be energized in spirit and mind to understand the word and what it means to be a spiritual person in today's world. In the last episode, which covered the first half of chapter 11, I argued that Matthew's Jesus wields the power of interpretation in a way that changes the world. He reinterprets Israel's texts and also the whole world and the world's conventional wisdom. And he gives that tool of interpretation or reinterpretation to his disciples. This power of interpretation finds its energy in an alternative and subversive wisdom. Jesus not only teaches this alternative and subversive wisdom, but as we will see in the second half of chapter 11, he becomes that wisdom. My name is Bert Newton, and this is episode 27 of Bible Study, Parody and Subversion in Matthew's Gospel. Interpreting Israel's sacred texts through a powerful alternative wisdom, Matthew shifts into a Jesus as wisdom motif, and Jesus reels off a very peculiar parable. Let's read Matthew eleven, sixteen to nineteen. But to what will I compare this generation? It is like children sitting in the marketplaces and calling out to one another. We played the flute for you, and you did not dance. We wailed for you, and you did not mourn. For John came neither eating nor drinking, and they say, He has a demon. The Son of Man came eating and drinking, and they say, Look, a glutton and a drunkard, a friend of tax collectors and sinners. Yet wisdom is vindicated by her deeds. Jesus starts out by making a characterization about this generation. That term, this generation, should not be taken to mean everyone alive at that time. That's how we use the term. A generation to us is everyone born within a certain span of years. But that's not how the New Testament uses the term. One of the definitions given by Thayer's Greek lexicon for the Greek word used here is very helpful in understanding the connotation of this word. It defines the Greek word translated as generation It defines it as a race of men 
or people very like each other in endowments, pursuits, character. And that seems to be how the term is often used in the New Testament. Luke 16.8, for example, has Jesus very clearly using this term to designate people not in his movement. In that passage, after telling the parable of the dishonest manager, he makes the statement, For the children of this age are more shrewd in dealing with their own generation than are the children of the light. The children of this age or generation are contrasted not with those of the past or the future, but with the children of the light. That's the contrast. The children of this generation and the children of the light. Jesus seems to use the term this generation in the Gospels as a designation for the old society, a society that is still here but is passing away. Everyone in the old society is generated, so to speak, by the fathers of that society, whereas in the new society, which nullifies the authority of the fathers of the old society, everyone is a child of one father in heaven and is generated by that father. The new society is a new generation. Jesus characterizes the generation of the old society as children playing in the marketplace. The Greek word for marketplace actually means more than what we think of as a marketplace. It can also mean forum or public place of assembly. It is the name for the place where men from the upper classes argued philosophy in the ancient world. This is probably the connotation that is intended here. Jesus has the children quoting a line from one of Aesop's fables. The line, we played the flute for you and you did not dance, comes from the fable, the fisherman and his flute. Aesop's fables were the type of thing that an ancient philosopher might quote to make a point, but it also sounds like a children's game. Jesus parodies upper-class men in philosophical debate as children playing a game in which they can never agree on anything, which is a stereotype of people who love to engage in philosophical debate, especially men who like to debate philosophically. The target of Jesus' criticism here are the wise men or scribes of that society. The educated elites of the first century Mediterranean world prided themselves in their debating skills. But Jesus unmasks them. They think themselves wise because they love to debate, but really they are more like children playing a silly game and never getting anywhere. Because they are like stubborn children playing a game and are not really interested in the truth or any sort of wisdom that might actually liberate people, they can't accept John or Jesus and use contradictory arguments in their rejection. John is too ascetic, and Jesus isn't ascetic enough. Nothing satisfies them because they aren't really interested in the truth, but are merely playing a game, while common people suffer under the brutal oppression of their class. But John and Jesus are not playing games. They are not merely tossing back and forth intellectual arguments for the fun of it. They proclaim a wisdom that saves lives, a wisdom that brings healing and establishes justice. Their works are the true works of wisdom. 
With the sentence, wisdom is vindicated by her deeds, we get the first of three instances of the use of the word wisdom in Matthew. Not only that, but wisdom here appears to be personified. Wisdom is vindicated by her deeds. This personification references the extensive passages in Israel's wisdom literature in which wisdom is personified as a woman. Read especially Proverbs 1-9, through where the wisdom of God is a woman who walks the streets of the city and calls out to people to listen to her and learn from her. Throughout the New Testament, Jesus is associated not only with wisdom as a concept, but also with Lady Wisdom herself. 1 Corinthians 1.24 calls Jesus the wisdom of God. Later in this chapter, Jesus will virtually quote Lady Wisdom. And Jesus not only frequently quotes Lady Wisdom, but his whole rather strange portrayal in that gospel can be explained as a virtual identification with Lady Wisdom. Throughout John's gospel, Jesus walks and talks like Lady Wisdom, yelling out in the streets, promoting himself, telling people to learn from him, and waxing eloquent in extended philosophical discourses. He behaves in the Gospel of John very much like Lady Wisdom in the book of Proverbs. If you read Proverbs 1, Lady Wisdom calls out in the marketplaces for people to listen to her and learn from her, and when they don't, she pronounces judgment on them. Well, that's exactly what Jesus does next. The old society has not listened, so he pronounces judgment. Let's read verses 20 to 24. Then he began to reproach the cities in which most of his deeds of power had been done, because they did not repent. Woe to you, Chorazin! Woe to you, Bethsaida! For if the deeds of power done in you had been done in Tyre and Sidon, they would have repented long ago in sackcloth and ashes. But I tell you, on the day of judgment, it will be more tolerable for Tyre and Sidon than for you. And you, Capernaum, will you be exalted to heaven? No, you will be brought down to Hades. For if the deeds of power done in you had been done in Sodom, it would have remained to this day. But I tell you, on the day of judgment, it will be more tolerable in the land of Sodom than for you. Jesus here riffs off of Isaiah fourteen thirteen to 15 when he says, Will you be exalted to heaven? No, you will be brought down to Hades. Isaiah fourteen thirteen to 15 pronounces judgment on the emperor of Babylon, the analog in Isaiah's time to Caesar. By quoting this passage, Matthew's Jesus implies that the leadership of these villages has thrown their lot in with Caesar, refusing to heed the message of the movement. While the movement that John and Jesus have started is a nonviolent movement, Jesus does, at least rhetorically, leave room for the final judgment by God on those who oppress the people. But it seems to be mostly rhetorical, not literal. What I mean is that the images of judgment that Jesus uses in Matthew do not maintain any uniformity, but rather vary, and especially in this case, are consistent with how Middle Easterners might express moral outrage. In an earlier episode, I gave an example of how a Middle Easterner 
might welcome you into his house by saying that the house is yours and that you may burn it down if you wish. But he does not really mean what he is literally saying. I think the same idea may be applied here. The judgment that Jesus pronounces on these towns is not necessarily literal, but primarily an expression of moral outrage. The towns of Capernaum, Bethsaida, and Chorazin were mid-sized towns. They were not the main hubs of the upper classes, but from the criticism leveled at them in this chapter, it appears that the dominant households in these towns were affluent enough that they at least identified with the upper classes and engaged in similar leisure activities, such as philosophical debates in the marketplaces. So the judgment is primarily on the ruling houses. The propagandists of the dominant economic system have told us to consume as much as we can so that the economy can expand and create more jobs and produce more stuff for us, and that we can do this forever and ever. Amen. And when many of us began to see through this web of deceit and began to name the absurdity of endless economic growth and consumption, the wealthy interests of the world split into two camps. One continues to sound reasonable, sometimes allowing modest interventions into the market, moderate limits on consumption, or maybe some sort of green redirection of consumption. The other has produced a massive right-wing media of alternative facts, conspiracy theories, and pseudo-populism that attacks the first camp, accusing it of being the cabal of elites that we have to watch out for. And of course, they're partly right, but mostly wrong. So now, especially in the United States, that is the spectrum of debate. Somewhat moderate, endless economic growth and consumption, or unlimited supposedly unregulated, full-bore economic growth, drill-baby-drill. That's the debate, we are told. Meanwhile, real facts, real science, and the common knowledge and obvious truths of our shared humanity are suppressed. It's clearer than ever that we are all in the same boat, the same boat called planet Earth, and that we need to learn how to share and how to care for each other, and take care of what is left. But these obvious truths that many ten-year-olds could tell us get left out of the dominant discourse, which is controlled by the elite no matter what they call themselves, no matter how much of so-called Middle America falls for the con. Unfortunately, we the people can be divided by constructs of race and class and meritocracy, we are a divided people, and the obvious truths that we all know deep down are harder and harder to access. The wisdom is there within us. It's just being suppressed. Jesus faced a similar situation in Galilee in the first century. In the last episode, we ended with Jesus' judgment on the towns in Galilee where Jesus had preached his message and performed his signs but had been largely rejected by the dominant households and those under their sway. I made the assertion that the judgment that Jesus proclaims is aimed primarily at the ruling households of those towns. The next few verses, which conclude chapter 11, reinforce this interpretation. 
Jesus speaks of himself as the conduit of God's wisdom to the common people. In other words, wisdom goes straight from God to Jesus, a peasant, to the common people, bypassing the upper classes, the elite households. In these verses, Jesus proclaims through true wisdom liberation of the peasantry from upper-class domination. My name is Bert Newton, and this is Episode 28 of Bible Study, Parody and Subversion in Matthew's Gospel. two verses of today's text, Jesus again turns to the theme of wisdom, something which the upper classes thought themselves to be the sole possessors of. Let's read Matthew 11, verses 25 and 26, just two verses. At that time, Jesus said, I thank you, Father, Lord of heaven and earth, because you have hidden these things from the wise and the intelligent and have revealed them to infants. Yes, Father, for such was your gracious will. Throughout this podcast series, I have highlighted the theme of wisdom and how Jesus is portrayed as a peasant wisdom teacher whose wisdom runs counter to the wisdom of the upper classes and who triumphs over them. In the last two episodes, we encountered the theme of the revealing of secrets and the theme of being able to see and hear or understand. These last two verses bring all of that together. The truth is revealed, but only to those referred to here as infants, and it is hidden from the wise. Infants, of course, is an ironic way of referring to the common people who lack formal education. Jesus calls them infants, because that is how the upper classes view them. But ironically, only they get the revelation of truth. Only they can see and understand, while the upper classes, who think themselves wise, remain blind, unable to see. Then Jesus says in verse 27, the next verse, All things have been handed over to me by my Father, and no one knows the Son except the Father. And no one knows the Father except the Son, and anyone to whom the Son chooses to reveal him. Now, traditionally, these verses have been interpreted as being about a high Christology, an exclusive salvation. Jesus is the only Son of God, and only through Jesus does anyone have access to God. But put in context of the larger chapter, and also in the context of first-century politics and economics, the thrust of these verses changes dramatically. Jesus is here using the language of patronage to describe who becomes the beneficiary of true wisdom from God. In episode 14 on chapter 7 of Matthew, I suggested that Jesus rejects those who want to see him as a patron, 
and themselves as his brokers. They say to Jesus, Lord, Lord, look what we did in your name. But Jesus rejects them because he rejects the whole Roman patronage system. But here, in an ironic sense, Jesus sets himself up not as a patron, but as the broker of God's benefits, of God's wisdom. God is the patron. God is the great patron who displaces all the smaller patrons. And Jesus uses father language for God. Patrons were fathers. I have previously argued that God as father in Matthew displaces all the fathers of the empire, from the fathers of the local households all the way up to Big Daddy Caesar. This verse makes that all clear. God is called father here and spoken of as a patron. The fathers were the patrons in that system. Jesus speaks of God as the great patron who gives him, a peasant, the truth, bypassing all the fathers of the great households who think of themselves as the patrons of everything, including truth, bypassing all the fathers of the great households so that he, Jesus, can then reveal the truth to the common people, the peasantry, and the societal outcasts. Wisdom goes from God to Jesus to the peasants and societal outcasts, completely circumventing the upper classes. Jesus uses patronage language here to subvert the patronage system, to subvert the whole patriarchal system of the empire. The great fathers and patrons of the empire are pushed aside. God gives the truth to Jesus and Jesus reveals it to the people. So Jesus continues in verses 28 to 30. Come to me, all you that are weary and carrying heavy burdens, and I will give you rest. Take my yoke upon you and learn from me, for I am gentle and humble in heart, and you will find rest for your souls. For my yoke is easy and my burden is light. Here Jesus speaks as wisdom quoting the words of a teacher in the service of Lady Wisdom. It comes from Sirach. In Sirach 51, 23-28, the author speaks for and about Lady Wisdom, saying, Come to me, you who are uneducated, and lodge in the house of instruction. Acquire wisdom for yourselves without money. Put your neck under her yoke, and let your souls receive instruction. It is to be found close by. See with your own eyes that I have labored but little and found for myself much rest. You can hear the parallel. So here Matthew portrays Jesus not just as a wisdom teacher, but as the wisdom of God. Sirach says, put your neck under her yoke. Jesus says, take my yoke upon you. The image of the yoke has a double meaning. On the one hand, it is an image that is used for educational apprenticeship, as in the quote from Sirach that I just read, which has a strong parallel to Matthew, in which Matthew, in a way, sort of subverts. Someone who becomes the student of a teacher takes on the yoke of that teacher, or the yoke of wisdom. But the image of a yoke also refers to political rule, and often to oppression. 
the yoke of oppression, such as in Isaiah 9.4. In that passage, a passage interpreted as messianic by New Testament writers, the liberator is said to break the yoke of oppression. It reads, this is Isaiah 9.4, For the yoke of their burden and the bar across their shoulders, the rod of their oppressor, you have broken. The Hebrew scriptures use the term yoke repeatedly to refer to political rule or authority. If the ruling power is oppressive, then the yoke would be understood as a heavy yoke, and it is contrasted with the yoke of God or the yoke of Torah or the yoke of wisdom, which is understood as easy or kind. Jesus is not saying that the discipleship that he calls people to is easy in the sense of not being difficult or risky, but that the rule or government of the new society places a kinder, more merciful yoke on the people. It is not oppressive. It is the yoke of God, the yoke of true wisdom. A paraphrase of his words might be, Come to me, you tired workers, those weighed down by oppression, and I will give you rest. Take the yoke of the wisdom of the new society on your shoulders and be my students, for I am gentle and lowly at heart, and you will find rest for your souls. For this yoke of wisdom is merciful, and its burden is light. Life in any society requires work and learning, but the work and the learning do not have to be heavy and cruel. Matthew's Jesus proclaims that the yoke of the new society will be kind and merciful, the yoke of true wisdom. Thanks for all your support. Thanks for all the ratings and reviews that you have given. And thanks for spreading the word, continuing to spread the word. Please continue to spread the word. Be safe. Take on the yoke of true wisdom and enter into the rest of God's new society. This has been Bible Study for Progressives. If you enjoyed the program, please subscribe to our podcast or put us in your favorites and write a five-star review. Tell your friends about us and share us on social media. Follow us on Facebook and click the donate button at modernlectionaries.blogspot.com. Your support will help us reach more people, produce more and better shows, and cover the cost of production. Feel free to send me a note or comment on the show. I would love to hear from you. Until next time, this is Rich Proceda. Thank you for listening.